0: Hi, welcome to Glad, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Levi, your host today, and I'm here in our studios in the British Library with Danny, hello, and Rachel. Hi. We do something different every time, but there's always a healthy dose of all things geography, life, geography life, and data. Today, we're talking about books, our favorite nuggets of wisdom that collect the state of the field and present them to people who want to learn. Or maybe they are something else. We don't know yet. We'll talk about that today. We wanted to talk about books because in our earlier episode about uh, the sad dinner party, we oftentimes asked interviewees uh, in the past what books they would bring to a dinner party. They considered to be the most important books in the field, things that they thought that everybody should read. And uh, pretty par for our course, at least, Um, it took us so long to get through the rest of the material (laughs) in our dinner party uh, that we never managed to talk about books, among a couple of other things. But we really, really do love books. All of us individually have written books and, and together have written some books. And um, so we have a lot of thoughts about what books are, uh, of course, but then also why we like them and, and which ones we like. So I'm wondering, uh, Danny and Rachel, um, if we can go through and maybe talk a little bit about our favorite books that we would bring to a dinner party. Um, I think we'll start with Rachel. So what would, what would be, if you could, two books that you could bring uh, that are your favorite books?
1: Well, the thing that's really funny about this is just how different we each are in real life. And of course we are. But then when we choose our books, you see that we are so different in our perspectives. I chose two books that I think of as being geography books. Um, In our show notes, though, it says explicitly geographical. And I think that that is really true. These are both books. One is Location in Space, which was um, an economic geography textbook, which came out in multiple editions. Um, I think I chose the second edition, something from like the late 1970s, maybe. Um, And then Geographical Analysis of Population by Plain and Rogerson, which is, I think, 1997. So both books from a previous century (laughs) yeah um and i didn't even have to so the interesting thing to me i'll talk about the books in a moment but the interesting thing to me is that i didn't really have to think that long um i knew that i wanted to choose geography books and i think i pretty quickly settled on the kinds of books i really like which are instructional so they're textbooks um, but are analytical and conceptual at the same time so there's a in both cases, so location and space, it's economic geography, but it's old school economic geography. So it's very much about locational analysis or location science. Um, Central place theory is a great example. But I think about when I teach um, non-geographers, geography or geographic theory, the concepts that I always really like. And central place theory is one but hoteling is one, Riley's Law for Retail Geography. These are concepts that are really easy to explain to students where there's almost like this like light bulb that goes off over their heads. So that's the thing that I really like about teaching geography. But location and space is a beautiful, especially the second edition, it's just a beautiful textbook. It's also really dense. There is no way that we would be assigning <laughs> this to students now to get through. When I've assigned chapters to students uh, in undergraduate courses, they struggle, and they don't struggle because it's too mathy or because there are too many equations. They struggle because it's written for a different generation It's written for when people um when people wrote very well it's beautifully written um but they're also lots of complicated words and the sentence structures are maybe a little complicated and there's it's assumed that the reader is going to do some work to understand what's going on and I don't think that we write that way anymore and you know people talk about this like Galbraith and and writing in economics like they're just people who could write really well Kenneth Boulding like you, you like you pull these quotes of like great economists great geographers and there's just a different era of writing so that's the thing that I really love about location and space the figures are beautiful they're really nice to look at, so I think for me it's almost like a museum object. Of like, we used mm. to make these really gorgeous things, mm-hmm. and now when we make things, whether it's a journal article or a book, there's so much emphasis on just getting it out the door. I mean, our editors don't edit our prose; nobody's going in and making our figures look nicer. We're in charge of doing that for ourselves, and of course, a little bit like this podcast, we're <laughs> academic researchers. Like we're not we're not made to make beautiful you know, art quality figures. So that's the thing I like about location and space. Um, it also is, I think, a very nice, It's it sets out sort of a canon of what economic geography would look like. Like, what would you need to teach? And now I'm wishing that I had the table of contents in front of me so I could go back and have a look and just sort of see, like, does this still resonate with me? Geographical analysis of population. That's more recent. And I was taught with this book um, when I started my PhD. It's written by Dave Plain and Pete Rogerson. Dave Plain was one of my PhD supervisors. And even at the turn of this past century, this book was already, was already old. Um, but Dave still used it because it had really good exercises and it, of course he had written it. So I think it still probably vibed with him, to, so to speak, but it, I love it because it's population, it's demography but it's geographical analysis. And so it lays out all of the fundamentals of population geography, you know, migration especially, but also how we characterize places demographically, how we think about school planning, um, how we do population estimates, like how we predict population sizes, all the different ways of doing this. This is usually informal demography. It very rarely bleeds over into population mm-hmm. geography. Uh, and so I really like it because it covers research of the time, Um, it covers basic measures, it covers data, and then it's got exercises and lots and lots and lots of examples. So if you see a new measure and you're not really sure how to use it, there's going to be an example and also very applied. So you can see why these different measures and approaches are really important out there in the real world. And I've always thought if I were going to write a textbook, this is the kind of textbook that I would want to write. So for me, this is why this is an obvious choice.
2: Well, I picked two books. So just a bit of context, this, this was books for the, the sat dinner party, so the spatial analytics and data. I definitely stuck to the analytics and data more than the spatial for my books, and a little bit like Rachel, I actually didn't have to think too much, and I ended up picking two that have very little or nothing to do with geography, and I think there's a reason for that, but I picked, so I picked two, I'll go with my picks first, I picked Goldman and uh Regression and Multilevel Models, a classic from 2006, I think it is. And then François Chollet's, uh Deep Learning with Python, which is more recent, I think is somewhere in the 2010s. And I picked these two because at a personal level, there are two books that I actually haven't read many, many books for geography. I was lucky and privileged to be taught geography well or to be taught spatial stats by the best people. So... I never had to go to too many books. But when I had to learn pretty foundational methods like multilevel mm-hmm. models or, or deep learning these days, these were the, the, you know, I couldn't access the great minds of the field. So these were my vehicle into into those great minds. And I think they're also, the, the main reason why I picked is they're both books that, to me at least, they pick, they take something that is inherently difficult and complex and they make it very digestible and in some ways particularly with the the one on deep learning that's been more to the detriment in that a lot of the reputation they've they've won is has, has been too easy not deep enough not comprehensive enough and i think that's bullshit i think they're actually <laughs> just really really good at something that people don't realize always how hard it is to do it's like a good pop song you know i don't necessarily love pop all the time but it's really hard to do a song that that's catchy that a lot of people think is good. And I think these books are a little bit like that. They're like pop songs, but about multilevel models and, and computer vision. So, you know, there's that. A um, couple of things. I think the multilevel ones I picked because it was the first time I realized that a lot of topics that are in in spatial analytics, things like spatial fixed effects, all the way to geogra- geographically weighted regression, they're all really particular cases of a more general one which is or that you can express a lot of even panel data econometrics. They're all particular cases of this really elegant framework called multi level models. And and both Andrew Gelman, and Jennifer Hill were both I think at Columbia University, they're just really good telling you how you interpret these models, what what they mean and what you can learn by using these models rather than the sort of mathy derivations that are more more I was more used to with with traditional econometrics textbooks. So yeah, very very good stuff. It's one of the the only books actually that I recommend to all my PhD students when they want to learn about regression because it starts very basic with traditional cross-sectional simple linear regression and then ends on very complex multi-level non-linear models. And then the other one, it's a, it's a more recent one, Francois Cholet is the guy who wrote a library called Keras, which is Sort of the human interface for another library called TensorFlow, which is in itself sort of the sign of an era that for those of you who don't know the 2010s among many other things will be remembered as the the decade where computer vision changed forever, where computers became better than humans at recognizing things in 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 pictures and where they learned how to tell cats from dogs, so to speak in in short and a lot of that revolution is because of these new algorithms, or in some ways that they're not necessarily new, but that they were infused with new new ideas. And this book, I think is really good at giving the reader the intuition of why these, these methods have done what, what they've been able to do, and what is the intuition behind. And for everyone who criticizes them for not having enough math, To me, it's like, that's the whole point. (laughs) It's it's really hard to communicate these ideas. It's even harder to communicate them well without math. And I think this book is excellent at at both those things. And then the final thing I'll say is that I picked these books because I wanted to find something that was somewhere between spatial analytics and data and more general reading. And these are two books that maybe this says more about me than anything. But I was able to read from cover to cover sort of at bedtime. I mean... I. You know, not every night I, I feel like reading deep learning with Python or or multi-level models, but they are so well written and they're so intuitive that you don't need to sort of spend twenty minutes per page annotating
0: every word to to process them. So
2: most recommended.
0: Yeah. No, those are those are all of those are very good books. I picked two that were again quite different, I think, from, from both of what Rachel and Danny picked. Mine were much more about the kind of grounded or historical knowledge about why we model things the way we model them. So I picked a a book called Computer Age Statistical Inference and another one called Statistical Rethinking. And Computer Age Statistical Inference is a fairly famous book by a collection of authors at Stanford University, which provides a really interesting perspective on how statistics came to be as a way of doing empirical analysis. It gives you kind of an insight as to why certain problems like a t-test or a chi-square test were solved in the way that they were solved and why then we are kind of stuck with the legacy of some of these design decisions that were done for analyses you know, almost 100 years ago at this point. So it was, it's an absolutely fascinating way of presenting how statistics came about as a, as a process and and embeds it in kind of a historical and a social context. And I thought that computer-age statistical inference did this really well, both for kind of the classical statistical approaches, but then also some of these kinds of cutting-edge data scientific methods that you hear about, you learn about, things like kernel regression or bootstrapping, Um, and again, presented as, well, a bunch of people in the 1970s and 80s were trying to solve some of these problems, And this is how they solve them. And and it's a really interesting way of presenting the uh, kind of our evolving relationship with computation and mathematics. You know, as we get better and better with computers, we kind of tend to do less and less math because it's hard for humans to do that. But it's easy to tell a computer to run thousands of simulations to find the right answer. So I found that book to be completely transformative in the way that I kind of understand statistics and analysis as an embedded practice. And I thought it was really well written as well. Um, and then statistical rethinking is is a very well publicized uh, contemporary book that reflects kind of a very different perspective on how to model processes. Um, it comes from this kind of uh, system representation school of modeling where you try and set up almost like an agent-based representation of some statistical system you're trying to learn about. you, you assign your uncertainty to distributions, and then it gives you a way to kind of estimate these uh, very complicated systems. But I guess the intuition that comes with statistical rethinking uh, is about trying to think about your process that you're modeling rather than the kind of classical approaches where you try and put everything into a linear regression and figure out how to estimate that linear regression. Instead, it encourages you to think more they call it bespoke about the what you model and how you model it. So instead of trying to figure out a variety of transformations or regressors or things like this, you just try and go for the process that you want to represent in a computer using a simulation system of some kind. And then you estimate the model that way. So it's a, it's a very different way of thinking about uh, statistical re- rethinking's first chapter on the Golem of Prague as an a- analogy for statistics. Is one of the best short essays I've ever read on why we do what we do. So even if you don't do anything else and you just read the first chapter, which has no equations, it's a very, very good book. But it has no geography and neither does computer age statistical inference. It's all on the analytics. So it's very different in the way that we, we pick what we like, I think.
1: But a difference, I think, between you and me, for example, would be that you you have several degrees in geography. So you would have been, this is me hypothesizing live, I think you probably were taught a lot about sort of thinking spatially, thinking like a geographer, and you might feel less need to have that as an input. Whereas I didn't take a geography course until I was in my master's degree and that was just by accident and so I really I think that it felt like a brave new world when I sort of discovered geography and all of this stuff that had come come long before me and so I think that for some reason it occupies like a very special place in my heart mm-hmm. because it's when I can remember the windows sort of opening out onto the world of thinking in a particular way and the sort of the elegance that it could that it could come with the sort of thinking spatially, but also there are ways to measure the world analytically that I had no background in at all. So yeah, I, it's, it's almost like, like when that spark. So, I definitely
2: like, had that with the two books I picked and maybe similar to what you were saying about Levi, I think I had those moments with other artifacts that weren't books in, in geography and in spatial analysis. And, and these were a little bit my windows into statistics and, a bit of computer science, um, so yeah, it definitely resonates.
0: Yeah, that's what's interesting about books too. Is that we're we're talking about books as if it's just a, a singular entity that's outside of us, but of course, we all have a relationship with books, with the books that we like and we don't like that shape our perspectives. Um, and then a part of how that relationship is shaped, of course, is that we're not just readers, but we're also writers of books. We've we've written uh, a couple of different. Kinds of books, some edited volumes, some some textbooks. And it it I think fundamentally kind of changes your relationship to what you read and how you read it, and maybe why you read it all. So I wonder um if maybe some of these different motivations can come out in why we even think these books uh are good or bad or or our relationship to them. Why why do we even write books? No answers.
1: Well, I mean, for one thing, I like words. I think we're probably very similar in that way, all three of us. I mean, there's something about liking to read, but also the process of writing is about the ideas that you have. But there are plenty of people with amazing ideas who don't have that sort of the turn of phrase and the good writing, and I really like good writing. Um, But for me, speaking for myself anyway, I think I have an element of sort of being an ontologist, Like an ontologist, like like, I think it's hard written into me the desire to sort of classify and organize and define structures, Mm -hmm. right? To bring order from what you could think of as chaos, the chaos of knowledge. And that is a thing that books do, especially textbooks, right? Economic geography is so many things. Demography is so many things. Spatial analysis. What is spatial analysis? (laughs) Okay. But if you decide you're going to write a book on spatial analysis, you... By definition are the one who's defining what is spatial analysis, what is the order in which it should be taught, what are the first principles, what has to come first before the next thing, how much detail does there need to be, and I find that amazing. And I think I like it when I look at books and see, okay, so this is how, like, this is how this person mm-hmm. chose to organize this system of knowledge. That mm-hmm. is fascinating to me. And so for me, part of a motivation of actually sitting down and writing, whether it's a paper, but especially a book where you actually are building the entire infrastructure and then hanging the knowledge on that infrastructure, right? If you think about it, your table of contents is already the skeleton of knowledge. The chapters just fill it out. So I find that- you know, hugely gratifying. And then for me, the other thing is just that it's nice to make things. And um, most of the time when I talk about what, what I do as, as an academic, as a researcher, as a geographer, I say I think my biggest impact is in the classroom because that's where I'm sort of conveying my way of thinking about the world and I'm providing that structure and knowledge. But there are, very other, there are very few other ways that we actually get to make things in our field, um, and I think for many of us, for me especially, there's something about that concrete object being in my hand and thinking, like I built this, I designed it, uh, and I'm happy. The podcast, what we're doing right now, the Glad Podcast, is another example of like trying to make something. And so, this is, of course, speaking purely from my own perspective. Like those are the re- those are some of the reasons why I find writing books. I think interesting.
2: the point about scaling the the impact that you have in the classroom to weigh, potentially, let's just assume that the book is read, but potentially to weigh more people than you could ever teach is a pretty powerful feeling. And to me, the other one is, at some point in my career, I realized that I had ideas that wouldn't fit into a paper. And this sounds ridiculous, That I mean, ridiculously obvious, but the way I was brought up and Everything had to be a paper, so you you start the way you think about things sort of has to fit into these eight thousand words. And at some point, it was very liberating to think about how you could fill more and what what else would you put. And that coupled with my
0: love for teaching is what I really enjoy about books. Yeah, there's nothing better than being able to codify, you know, what made that one student's aha moment happen, and be able to try and reproduce that in a in a convincing visualization or or set of text it's always mm-hmm. wonderful when you're able to kind of do that thinking about ontologies then because that is great we 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 also have to reckon with the fact that i think our books also come from very different periods of time there is something about a book as our relationship to it occupies a point where we are in the present but then also the book comes from a place right and so when when you read a book and it has this table of contents that lets you kind of structure, you know, how the points are hanging over and how it's going to present its own view of the field. I guess, what do you think is the, the, the most important part or, or, or the way that these books structure our perspective of a field? Is it in the sense that they are kind of vehicles of knowledge in that way? Or do we write books because we want to kind of present our take? What do you think?
2: I think it's it's a uh, opinionary curation that that was my point that I was going to make that there's something nice about being able to express formally what your view is on on a field or on a set of knowledge and it's not that it makes it true but it, it to me is very very satisfying to take as Rachel was saying a, a collection of things that seemingly don't relate to each other and then put them together into a structure that sort of comes together nicely and it's opinionated curation. I mean, who doesn't like having opinions? Yeah. <laughs> certainly on this table. <laughs> Three of us are.
1: And I suppose most of us, actually, this may not be true at all, but I certainly have never thought I'm going to write something and and generations after me are going to read these words. I think I'm more likely to think, hmm, there are so many words being produced these days that we're going to be lucky if anyone today reads them, much less anyone in 50 years or 100 but then the accidents happen, and I, in my mind, I'm thinking of like the airplane with the bullet holes in the wings. Like, we don't know what what's going to emerge in, in 50 years. What will people be reading? Mm. They, we can't necessarily predict that, and so all we can do is engage in sort of of the moment. Like, but we're definitely we're we're definitely part and parcel of the eras in which we live, and so we think about things in a particular way. And maybe when I look at at location in space, I'm thinking it probably tells us so much about how science was being done mm. in that particular time. It tells us something about where the quantitative revolution was, about the ways in which quantitative human geography had become embedded in different departments around the United States, for example, or in the UK, um, what was maybe ahead on the horizon. We have the benefit of being able to, you know, if you choose a book from the late 1970s and 1990s, well, we have the benefit in 2023 of being able to say, well, here's what stuck and here's what didn't stick. Right. Here are the ways that we completely have changed how we look at things. So I think all we can do is engage.
2: Yeah, I think. And actually, thinking about it now, the two books that I picked are, to me, two great examples of how you thread code pedagogically, and in in some ways it really speaks to the to the time uh, that they're both around. Well, two thousands for sure, and into the twenty tens. And I think that I. That that sort of
0: mirror of the time, it's is something that is much harder to do in a is very different now, right? There was a long time when some of these textbooks, probably Lloyd and Dickin being a great example, would not necessarily have any code at all or any kind of walkthrough or any labs. But now it seems impossible to get through a book uh, without that.
1: Yeah, well, so I when, I when Danny was talking, I was thinking... One thing that has changed for sure, especially if you look at geographical analysis of population has lots of annexes at the end of the book that explain logarithms, that explain regression, that explain this explain that. We wouldn't need any of that anymore. And it's not because people are necessarily better educated, it's because we've got the internet. And books that are even 20 years old needed to be sort of self-contained. You needed to hand over to, it's a little bit like a package, right? Books were yeah. much more like a package. You needed to be able to hand them everything they were going to need in order to engage fully and digest that entire volume. We don't worry about that anymore because we know that if somebody doesn't understand some little thing, uh, they're just going to look on the internet for it.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting too, because that that speaks a little bit to the way that our relationships with books have changed. But it also kind of enables us to think about how books have changed themselves, right? Yes. Many books now mm-hmm. are a YouTube series plus a website, and if they exist in and what they're what are not we call. books at all. <laughs> exactly, they're not a dead tree form as we might say. They're they're almost living projects. Where you know, if you want to submit a correction, you don't have to write a letter to the author and then maybe hope that in five years a new edition incorporates your edits. You can just make a pull request and change the book yourself if you're able. So it's it's a fascinating different way. And I wonder that that know-how relationship to know what, right? The, the way that we structure our books and what we talk about, it seems like books have become a lot more about knowing how, because there's so much more code. Yeah. And to me, that, that's interesting, because on the one hand, it reflects the technological
2: possibilities. We, we do these things because we can, because there is the tools, the tools that enable it. And those tools didn't exist 10 years ago. But on the other hand, I think it's also a cultural reflection of the moment we're in, that People don't really don't necessarily like to to get a book that's hard to read. It, that's beautifully written, but it's hard to read. And when I say people don't want, I'm probably I'm definitely overgeneralizing, but I think the way we approach knowledge and the way we learn is just very different. This I always think of it as as in music. I'm sort of of the I think I'm from the last generation that enjoyed listening to full, whole albums, and now everyone listens to just playlists. And I I love playlists too, but I think that you can say more with a collect with a structured collection of of songs than than with a playlist or you know you not more you can say different things and i think with books is a little different is a little similar that what they do and what they want to do is is different because the people also understand them in different ways
1: right but i think we have a tendency to think of uh history as progress or sort of linear that we used to do this and now we do this and i think that it's What is, of course, much more complicated than that. But I think this the album versus playlist is what made me think about this. And I think it must hold for the written word as well, is that you have this sort of ubiquity of technology. So like anyone can write a book now. So that has definitely changed how books get produced because it's much easier to do it. Um, But we also know that lots of young people are going back to listening to albums. uh, And even vinyl makes a return. So I think it would be foolish of us to expect that something similar might not happen with Books. And I totally agree with you. Right now, we seem to be uh, an auditory society or uh, a visual society, and much less a reading society. We will watch things, we'll certainly listen to things if this podcast is anything Hopefully, to go by. You'll listen uh, to things. <laughs> um, but we, I guess, are assuming that if we were to decide to do like a glad, uh, sub stack that people would be less likely to read so many words from us. So I guess that's what we're assuming.
2: I don't think it's reading necessarily. I think it's reading long form that yeah. I think it, it's become, and the same way with listening that the you listen? you know, the idea of listening to the 10 songs by the same artist, I think is not really foreign to many people The the idea of reading 400 pages by one person, it's a bit odd mm-hmm. to some people. Well, one, one, one well, is a blog post or yeah. a video. And
1: well, the thing I find more interesting is the divergence between sort of fiction, nonfiction, actual books that you buy when you go into Waterstones or Barnes and Noble or any other bookstore versus what we're talking about today, which is academic, right? We would, we would think about the popular press versus like the arcane stuff that we're talking about today. And I guess my hypothesis, I love hypotheses, would be that it wasn't that way 40 years ago, but maybe I'm completely wrong.
0: I, I think that it is probably the case when you look at some of the kind of older books written by, you know, in particular, these areas that kind of straddle domain theory. I'm thinking of like some things like uh, some of the early books by Ron Johnston and the urban geography imprints like those were popular books, but they were also academic books. But I, I do tend to think that our kind of current obsession with know-how and the fact that so many more books have to have code and teaching Kind of the way to do something rather than just the thing itself it it, it makes it so that it is less accessible to a general audience and it, it does limit both the readership of a book you know if i write my book in one language then computer users of different languages might not necessarily be able to buy into that and that's just talking about the difference between r python and julia let's say but there's kind of this ethos in general that books have to be useful now in this way and that that mm. we We have kind of created this this kind of useful object out of a book. And I I think that that actually might be what's the, the, the change in our relationship to what we're expecting to get out of a reading experience, let's say.
1: A gap that still exists though, I would propose to you is that we've gotten better at showing how models are estimated, what results look like, but for most users, I think we still really lag on explaining in an applied setting with actual real world data and the messiness of the actual model, what you would do with the results, right? And so I think there's a huge market and I don't know how we fit it in with the code, but I would actually argue that first, we just had like the sort of worked examples with practice data. Now you get it with code, but where we really, really are still falling short is that Especially undergraduates, but most PhD students, what they want is to say, "Okay, like I've done this. Now, what do all these numbers mean? And what if my numbers, like, what if my any test statistic isn't doing the thing that the test statistic is supposed to do? Now, what do I do?" And we leave people hanging, right? We just say, "Like, you need to, you need to meet these assumptions." This is, but they're not in the real world. Nothing is ever clean, and we haven't figured out how to deal with the dirty.
0: Yeah, it's a tough. It's a tough way for for us to codify knowledge in that sense, because yeah. there is no way to write a textbook about what do you do when your model falls apart. <laughs> that, that's also a more opinionated topic, right? Like a
2: derivation of a math formula is a derivation. You can make it more intuitive or less, but it is what it is. Well, what you do when you, you don't get what you expected with life, it's a much more you know, topic, I think, for curation. The, the thought that sparked this is that there is, to me, and this is sort of the, the spoiler, the role of books today is not codifying knowledge that is codified in the internet is curating it and and making it available in an digestible way. And maybe the next step will be more the, the what to do when your model breaks.
1: Ah, well, so the example, the example that I can think of is, is kernel density estimation,
2: right? Where
1: lots of people, it was so easy to use that it's, almost ubiquitous i mean if you inter- if you if you accidentally introduce it to undergraduates then in my experience three quarters of them will have it in their final projects because it's so fascinating for some reason to them and yet it, there isn't a lot that sort of says here are the choices that you should be making and it's for those of you who are listening, Danny is rolling his eyes at me a little bit. No, no,
2: no, 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 no. <laughs> But I
1: think it's actually these, I think it's actually these like bread and butter measures that are the ones that are so easily misused that we just don't give a lot of explanation to. Um, and there are so many choices that are implicit. Your results are entirely dependent on the, the choices that you made in estimation.
2: I, w- I wasn't rolling my eyes. I was, <laughs> no, I was thinking that KD is a really good example of something that... I think is conceptually really tricky and really sophisticated, but it was all of a sudden made easy
0: by RGIS
2: or or computers in general. So then now everyone and then there's this assumption that because it's really easy to do, it's really easy to use. And it's just not the case. It's it's just really Mm -hmm. easy to Mm do. (laughs) But you still have the hard part of interpreting. I think there's a lot of computational methods that that share that property that they've been Traditionally, it was really, really hard to do. So they were highly priced in the literature. In getting the numbers, it was making sense of them. And I don't think we've cracked that. I think it's also been much harder to codify it. This is the point I was making, that it's at that point then it becomes a, a more of a philosophical question of what does that mean? Or how do you interpret it? Not philosophical,
0: but it's a much more open-ended yeah. question. It's certainly more subjective in the way that you then yes. have to like work with a statistical model to make an argument. And that's actually one of my favorite things about statistical rethinking is that it embraces the subjectivity as a way of kind of moving beyond these questions of now I've got the numbers, what do they mean? And I think too, there's a a book recently by Aki Vitari and Gelman called Regression and Other Stories, which is kind of all about these cases where your model falls apart or falls down and trying to give you kind of a practical intuition through worked examples about how this works. But the issue is that all of these are non-transferable in a way, right? Because nobody can write a textbook about your specific problem. Yeah. And then you know it is a bit more. It's part of this kind of subjectivity of modeling, which I wonder if we might have resisted and during a period of time in our field that is now coming back in these big ways. So it yeah. is. And it just for
2: reasons. the record, I think that's a good thing because otherwise we'd be out of a job very very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> we could codify all these, all these tricky solutions.
0: So we we have a lot of thoughts about sort of why one would write a book, but but you know each of us has indeed written books before. And I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about like just the mechanical process of how we go through and do these kinds of things. What What's the first step? What was the first step, Danny, when we got our Geographic Data Science book? Ooh, I don't remember what was the first step.
2: Um, I think, so th- just for the listeners, search, uh, Levi is talking about a book that Levi, uh, Serge Ray at San Diego State and myself have coming out Soon you can pre order one or ten copies already on the web and it's called Geographic Data Science with Python. It's a book that's it's a little bit well, I don't know what it is. I can give you my, my opinion on what it is, but maybe Levi will have a different one. It's it's a basically a summary of spatial analysis for modern times, for, for the, the the age of data science. And it's as the title suggests, very it very heavily relies on Python. But at least what I'd like to think is that it relies on Python in a, pedagogic way. is not, I certainly didn't intend to make a how-to manual. It was, I, I wanted to make a book about analyzing spatial data. And I think computers help you think about these problems. And I think Python, I just happen to, to think that is the best way of, the best vehicle for, for thinking with computers. But going back to the mm-hmm. original point of your question, why or where it came from, I think it came from a lot of the material that Initially, Serge and I and then Levi realized that we had all the teaching sessions, workshops, classes, courses that we've been given over the years, and how pretty much every time we would reinvent the wheel ourselves, we've written the same course and the same workshop several times. And at some point we said, maybe we could just write it one more time, (laughs) write it a bit better, and then make it a book. And that, that was the genesis. And actually, the original materials that started then have been entirely rewritten through the process. Maybe Levi can talk a bit more about that
0: yeah it is it is a it is a longer form thing where when you intend to write a book like a textbook you're trying to support in a way as we talked about your pedagogical experience but it does kind of at least in my experience grow out organically of the stuff that you teach and maybe stuff that you have on hand data sets that you might like I don't know Rachel how was your experience with the GIS and the social sciences
1: well this was sort of interesting because so far, we haven't really differentiated between sort of solo writing and team writing. Um, this was a team written textbook with Graham Clark and Demetrius Ballas, myself, and then at the end, uh, Andy Newing. But when it started, it was led by Graham Clark, who was at Leeds. He's now retired. And initially, there was a lot of thinking about we knew what it was going to be. It was going to be a GIS textbook. It's going to be for the social sciences, so not for a geography market, but sort of sorting out what that table of contents was going to look like. And here, I think the team effort was really interesting because there's this immediate like immediate divergence from like what I would consider to be GIS and the social sciences versus what everyone else has. And that's partly because people bring different experiences, but it's also because of this teaching element, right? And so you have people who are thinking, I've already got lectures on crime, so we're definitely doing crime. And I've already got lectures on transport, so we're gonna do transport. And I think that's great because it does, at writing a book is so much work. So that definitely definitely makes a big difference if you've already got some materials prepared. So in that case, it was interesting that we just had some chapters where I wouldn't necessarily think of this as sort of traditional social sciences, and I would have liked to have had more of something, but we didn't have that expertise to hand. The other thing that made a difference was that we knew we were going to have, I think we have 12 or 13 chapters. And so the divvying up of chapters and who was going to be responsible for which chapter It took us a long time to write this book. And in the end, my four chapters, I essentially had to set aside a couple of months and just block everything off my schedule and sit down. And I would say, okay, I've got two weeks. I'm writing the first chapter. I've got another two weeks. That's all I'm going to do. And for the first couple of chapters, so you... What would be really interesting would be a look at a book like this, where you can sort of wonder if you can guess at who the authors yeah. are of different chapters. Uh, but I wrote the first couple of chapters, which are very much stage stage setting, which I really enjoy. So that was a certain kind of work where I just had to think about, okay, if I, the ontologist, to me speaking, like, how am I going to introduce what I know is coming? Like, what are the concepts we need to cover? How do I cover them for a lay audience who may have no background whatsoever in GIS? So it was kind of fun, but but pretty straightforward. The other two chapters, one I think is on uh, environmental justice. And then I had one that landed in my lap that was like emergency planning. And I had no idea what to do with like hazards and emergency planning. So those chapters were really different because those chapters were like a lot of reading and trying to figure out like environmental justice, for example, just trying to get like the lay of the land. Like, what are the techniques that are used? What are the questions that are asked? What is the foundational literature in this area? So I would do a lot of reading and then I would sort of speculate. Out an outline and then I would have like toy examples just sort of walking through different typically used spatial analysis techniques and sort of what they would give you and spatial joins is a really good example of like you want to know where environmental disamenities are there are lots of different ways of thinking about whether or not you have one in your neighborhood so for me this is super fun to also do with a worked example. But like, there's a lot of teaching going into this, like, you know, if you stick things in containers, like there are disadvantages to this. And if you do it this way, there are disadvantages to it. So that I enjoyed, but it was like head down for a couple of weeks for some of these chapters, just living and breathing environmental justice so that I could produce a chapter. And that worked really well, because it definitely informed all of my teaching afterwards, like I, I I now know the papers I point students to, I now have examples and graphics, so, so that was great. As a team, it was really hard to bring everything together and then at the end we needed to have um, exercises for each chapter, we had to make the decision about which platform to use because we had to choose one. Um, and in the end, Andy Newing wrote all of those. And so a lesson that I learned from that book was that there's definitely, if like you think writing the book is going to be really hard, but then you're going to have all these practicals that have to be written and solution sets, and that is a whole job. That in and of itself is at least a job for one person, sort of thinking about that. But I really enjoyed the process, uh, and I would definitely do it again. I feel it's a little bit like organizing a wedding. I now know exactly what I would do differently um, in order to get to get this sort of like the idea that I have in my head of what it should be like. But that's what, that's what we're doing all the time is learning as we go. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's interesting because the way that you outlined writing that book is very different from how we ended up doing ours, which was much more kind of co-working in small chunks on the same chapters. We did do a little bit of round-robin passes of individual bits being written by one person and then they'd get checked in and someone else would go over it. But uh, as a whole, ours ended up way more threaded. But I think in some ways that meant it was way harder for us to coordinate because You'd have to get two or three people on a Zoom call for two hours writing your book for, you know. Yeah. A, it took us a two long time. Two of them time. in the
2: UK and one in California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little tricky. But
0: it's so interesting how these different methods of writing are, are totally yeah. like fundamental to the way that the book comes together. But well, I thought, I think it was, personally speaking, it was a lot of fun to take
2: the challenge of how do we make it so the reader doesn't know who wrote this paragraph? And I mean, I don't know if we managed to. Hold, I guess the the truth is in the pudding. So when the book comes out, which it is out because it's free online, uh, but if you order it, you will get it on paper. paper. <laughs>
0: um,
2: you can see for yourself. But it was yeah, it was very different. We we didn't we didn't even split. I don't think we ever split chapters. We said I'm gonna take the first pass to this one, but the first pass is it wasn't more than than an outline. The real job was in the first drafting, and that drafting happened. Remember, we would meet on Zoom. We would leave the, we would mute ourselves. Leave, this is the part of it during the pandemic. We'd leave the, the audio on and we would start writing. And then once we had two paragraphs, we would say, okay, done. And then we would send those two paragraphs to someone else and get the two paragraphs from the other person, read them and edit them. So at the end of the day, it was there wasn't a person who had written those paragraphs. It was really the three of us. Uh, so hopefully that comes together in, in the book.
1: Well, and I find that interesting because, I think I'm very wedded to my voice, mm. and so on a collaborative project, um, and I think part of it is this attachment to words. But I think I, I think I write in a particular way, and I think I have a penchant for things like <laughs> metaphors uh, and framing, and 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 I like that, and I like being able to look at the words, and I it actually matters to me. I think that somebody could look at something and attribute it to me, like if I were to think about legacy, written legacy. If I were to have like my wish come true, it would be that somebody could pick something up and say, "I bet this was written by Rachel, Rachel Franklin. It has all of the distinctive characteristics of a book or a paper that would have been written by Rachel Franklin." That would be my dream, probably.
2: I, I will also say that I don't think I could have written this book like this with anyone else. <laughs> 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 and in some ways, I think certainly if I are probably as close as it gets to my to my mind when it comes to. Uh, how I think about this topic. So it would have been really hard to do with other people, um, but it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. It is it is interesting because there is a voice that ends up coming out of a group session like that, but it definitely doesn't have that kind of distinctive individuality yeah. that, that you're talking about, Rachel. I, I, totally I hope understand. that if anyone picked
2: up the book, it was like, this is like Levi Sertz and I sat down <laughs> for a beer and talked about this topic. And, yeah. you know, if, yeah. if we've done our job right, that's what it would come out. I don't know if that's actually the truth. But. Yeah,
0: it is interesting. And then, of course, there's a whole different level of kind of editorial control and voice that you get when doing an edited volume, which is a, a kind of book that we really haven't talked about uh, so far too much, where uh, usually you invite a bunch of people, tens, sometimes twenties, uh, to to author individual chapters on individual topics. And the whole idea is to get a little bit of everybody's perspective into a book. And then at the end of the day, you, as an editor, responsible for kind of trying to figure out if they hang together at all. Um, Rachel, you just finished one, uh, the Handbook of Spatial Analysis.
1: Yeah, so Serge Ray and I edited the, it's an Elgar Handbook of Spatial Analysis in the Social Sciences that we, I think we wrote the proposal for in 2019. uh, And it just finally came out in like November, December, 2022. So it was a very long labor. Uh, And this was largely due to the pandemic, but it was also because we had over 30 chapters. And the way we sort of started at the outset was that we had a sense of all the topics that we wanted to cover and what the the subsections of the volume should be. But then it's very much sort of which authors come through with their chapters and which ones don't. And so you start off with this beautiful picture. It's a little bit like the meme of like the perfectly drawn horse on the front end of the, by the time you get to the second end of the horse. It's just kind of like poorly sketched in, which is not to say that the contributors were not fantastic. It's just that you start with a perfect sort of crystal clear vision of what spatial analysis in the social sciences should ideally look like right you like you've you've hit the you've hit the true but unknown but then when the chapters start coming in you realize that there're going to be these gaps and you're not actually going to achieve that that perfect state of the art and i'm mostly at peace with it because i think it's interesting you know if we're talking about sort of being products of an era this when someone looks back at it Leaving aside the content, just looking at the table of contents, the topics that are covered and the people who are covering them, I think will provide a very useful marker of what was being done by whom, where and how at a particular time period. But yeah, as you were saying, I mean, a, a edited volume of that scale is stops at some point feeling like, an, for me anyway, feeling like an intellectual endeavor and is much more a sort of secretarial administrative endeavor, because you've got all these figures that need to be numbered and tables that need to be numbered and author consent forms and has somebody sent the first draft and has the chapter been reviewed. And, you know, in the end for 30 chapters, it was just sort of a lot of, a lot of spreadsheets, but it came I came out. You could order 10 copies. I don't know if you want to, because it'd be like 100? 500 pounds. <laughs> I mean, like in weight, not in money. If I, in money, it'd be way more. Uh, <laughs> but it's a very hefty volume, I have to say.
0: Yeah, I I am only getting very close to finishing, I guess, the first edited volume I've ever been involved with, with Alison Heppenstall and Rich Harris, uh, called A Research Agenda for Spatial Analysis. And it was a very similar kind of experience. Although instead of uh, kind of structuring it in the way of having individual examples, we we had it more be like a collection of manifestos of particular like areas of, of analysis or concepts that people studied, and it was very indeed as you say. Whereas like the process of writing a book yourself is very creative, and you get to like explore your own voice. In a sense, you know the only real places you can do that in edited volume are introductions, conclusions, epilogues, things like this. Otherwise, you're just always in the emails trying to get people to send you figure quality, uh, high quality figures or new versions of drafts or trying to get reviews done. So it is such a different way of kind of producing the knowledge. But at the end of the day, it's still kind of like this curation effect of, of generating kind of what a large collection of people working on these these topics do. And I totally agree with the point about, you know, it, it, it's important about what the authors write about. But then also with these edited volumes, sometimes it's really interesting to be able to look back at like an edited volume from the 1980s or the 1970s and see all the different authors that are in those. And maybe there are some who you've never seen before, you go on to look at their work and it's really cool, you wouldn't have missed it or you would have missed it otherwise. So it's an absolutely fascinating kind of different way of doing things in that way.
1: I'm also a little bit fascinated when I look at some of these tables of contents for edited volumes, what the underlying stories are of who is in the table of contents and who Mm. isn't because almost always there are these sort of glaring gaps. And you think, well, these people not deliver chapters on time? Were they not asked? Like, you know that there's so much that is hidden underneath. And I find those dynamics equally fascinating, that like what we th- what we think is the state of the art of any discipline or any subfield is actually just a few An people's opinion. version of yes. like mm-hmm. who they thought the important players were. And we sort of, we, we create that. I, and I think that this takes me back just to thinking about SAD and spatial a- analytics and data and like that one thing that we want really wanted to take advantage of during the pandemic with the SAD seminar series was that we could open things up so much more widely, right? Instead of having to pay for individual people to travel to Newcastle or Bristol, we could just, we could have guests from all around the world and we could have audiences that were global. And that is something that with edited volumes, we just, we can't quite get there, but I would love to be able to think about how to really capture a representative picture of where a mm. subfield is? Yeah,
0: yeah, because it is tough when you invite someone to come write a chapter. You know, it, a lot of it really comes down to whether or not they have the time, the resources, the ability to prioritize. And at the end of the day, what it ends up in the book is what the person is able to produce. And, you know, if you, you miss a chapter from someone, it, it's gone in that way. There's no, in that same kind of metaphor of the plane with the the, the red marks to show, you know, the ones that survived and the ones that didn't. There's no way to know the, the, the set of people that was invited to, you know, Barry and Marvel's spatial analysis. So you never know. Well, with that, I think we've uh, had about all of the discussion that we, we have for today on books, the processes of writing and, and the ways that we go about kind of thinking about books and motivations for writing. Uh, so thank you very much. We're glad you could join us today. Uh, look out for us on your favorite podcasting app and expect more content from us from the future. So with that, I'll let you go. Bye.
1: Bye.